1: Live. Multi Speed Technology is the show that puts you, the listener, in the driver's seat because you are the content. The phone lines are open to be a part of the program. It's a free call. 1 855 450 NOAA. That's 1 855 450 6624. Give me a call. We'll have a conversation about your tech questions or business and tech questions. Linux Advocate, above all else, small business owner, now host of the only radio show centered around you, the listener. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. My name is Noah July. So, good evening to you all. Happy to be here. We are trying something new uh, this episode. We got a new broadcast machine in. And uh, this machine was custom-built specifically for the Ask Noah Show. So, instead of putting a bunch of money into capture hardware and stuff like that, um, it we have brand new audio interfaces and all of that. Now, the thing is, the producer of our show, uh, Mr. Rikai, he has to go through and edit all of this stuff. And so, when I make sweeping changes like this... It makes his life very, very difficult. And so the solution that I came up with is we're going to try, I'm going to try and do uh, two streams. I'm sending the ordinary stream and recording it just like we always do. That's the stream you're seeing at JBLive.tv or uh, the stream that you're hearing at AskNoahShow.com or if you're listening to us on LogosRadio. Uh, I think US or on 88.3 FM. But. In addition to that, we are going to Facebook Live, which is the only platform I could think of that most JB viewers wouldn't be on anyway because, you know, Facebook's that proprietary piece of crap. But as a small incentive, if you are joining us on Facebook Live, I do have this little uh, C920 that I stuck up here on the top of my monitor. And uh, and so there is a, a, a camera on so you can see into, into this room. And, and again, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we moved into my personal studio. So you can see I've got like my drum set and, and electric guitars and amps and stuff like that behind me. Uh, and so it's... It, it doesn't look very techy, and uh, the room's a bit of a mess, to be honest with you, because that's that's our, our rental rack. We've got a rental rack over to the right. Um, but that's just something special that we're trying. So facebook.com slash linux I think, and uh, if, if I'm going to be very honest with you, I uh, I don't want to do a video show, and so I'm pretty much going to ignore the this camera and the whole Facebook thing the rest of the night, but a uh, plug if you guys want to want to join if you wanted to see what it looks like when we do a radio show you're welcome to to join us again facebook.com slash colonel and the, I, I think i did we think we did find an actual direct link and we tweeted that out um, and there's some way to f- i think to watch the replay or something like that so it could be kind of cool and uh, if the recording does go well then the video version of this i would assume would get released out with the youtube stuff and so you guys can see how that looks you can see what it's like behind the scenes so to speak all right uh, phone lines are stacking up so we want to go to the phones we'll start with ian in canada Hi, Ian. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. How can we help today?
2: Hi. Uh, yeah, I've got, um, uh, I've got a problem with the Wi-Fi in the house. It's, it's pretty patchy. It's a 2,500 square foot house. Um, I've got a few things which are the problem. One is that I've got about, if I look, there's about 30 other SSIDs I can see uh, mm. pick up. And on each of my 2.4-gig channels, like 1, 6, and 11, I'm getting at least six other routers that I've got to compete with. Now, and and on the 5-gig one, obviously, I've not got as much range. Um, I've heard you talking about Microtik, and um, what I've got in the house anyway, I've got Cat6 everywhere. Every room has got Cat6. But I've got certain devices, like Roku's and things like that, and tablets that obviously need the Wi-Fi. And I'm wondering, how you've put them in quite a few hotels. I'm thinking about putting, say, three uh, routers in, uh, three access points, wireless points, through the house. I'm wondering whether to set them up. Uh, well, A, which model do you recommend? Uh, and and B, should I have all the same SSID? At the moment, I've got an Asus uh, router that is flashed up with a uh, tomato USB which is similar to DDWRT. Mm -hmm. Um, That's okay in the one room, but I've got patches all over the house, which I'm not getting anything. I'm just wondering, you know, I want a robust setup. I've seen the Google mesh, but I don't really want to go down that that route. Uh, I'm just looking for an idea here and some exact product pointers.
1: Yeah, of course. Um, So... Uh, The product that you're referring to, the Microtech, they actually make some of the best routers that are out there. And a lot of people use them as access points. In fact, they actually, the company themselves, actually provides one of the ports. I think it's port one, allows you to power the router itself over PoE, or we call power over Ethernet. That is, we power the device using the same cable that we get our data from. Now, I don't actually use Microtech for wireless, and the reason is Ian is because there's a better solution out there, and the better solution is an access point by the company by the name of Ubiquity, and Ubiquity makes the some of the best access points, if not the best access points out there. And I have put my uh, Ubiquity Unify system up against thousands of dollars worth of Cisco equipment. I've put it against thousands of dollars worth of Ruckus wireless equipment, and uh, I can hold my own every single time. In fact, some of the largest Linux. Um, Community-held events with some of the most people and the best Wi-Fi I've ever had was done using Ubiquiti. So I can't recommend them strongly enough to you. The other thing, and this doesn't hurt, is the fact that the price point is actually very, very low. So if you take a Ruckus wireless, there are two kinds of wireless systems that we look at. The first is what we call a managed Wi-Fi system, and the second is what we call an autonomous system. Wi-Fi system. Now, an autonomous Wi-Fi system is basically what you have. You take a router, you take an Asus, whatever. Uh, uh, NGenius, I think, is another company that makes a lot of uh, uh, autonomous access points. And they, you get a web interface and you go in there and you give it an SSID and then you set the channel and then that's your access point. And so if you wanted to program 100 access points, you would log into 100 different web pages. Now, that is problematic enough when we're talking about just doing you know, five or ten around the house, you know, if it's a big house, uh, or even a hundred at, at a small event. But can you imagine in some of my installs where I have literally thousands of access points if I had to log into each one of those devices? I, that would be, that'd be a full-time job for three people. Uh, so it's not practical. And so what we have is we go to something called what we call a managed system. Now, both Ruckus, Cisco, and Ubiquiti are all managed systems. Uh, Cisco can do both. Um, but basically what the managed system is... Ian is you buy a controller, or you repurpose an old computer, or you run it in a virtual machine like I do, uh, and you run the controller software runs on Mac, Windows, and Linux, and you take your access points and plug them in and put the configuration into the software one time, and then after that, every access point that you plug in will automatically take the uh, configuration that you were using. Now here's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. The access points will from ubiquity are again some of the best access points ever and what they allow you to do is monitor what we call rogue access points so in your case that's the other networks that you're seeing and it will do channel optimization and say here is a here is the best channel they're they're all bad maybe okay Uh, and so but here is the best one of the bad channels and of course you know you mentioned that you have both 2.4 gigahertz and five gigahertz the truth is ian Everyone runs on 2.4 gigahertz. I mean, cordless phones run on 2.4 gigahertz. My microwave runs on 2.4 gigahertz. You know, I think I have my, my dog has this little bark collar thing. I think that stupid thing runs on 2.4 gigahertz. I mean, the, the channel is just totally polluted. So you really want to stick with 5 gigahertz if you can. You really want to stick with wireless AC if you can. Now, the Unify UAPAC Pro... That is the professional version of the UAC, and it's only about $20 or $30 more than the AC Lite. I think it's about $130, and again, if you can run the software on your computer, then there's no extra cost to that. If you want to buy a dedicated controller, Unify actually makes something called the Cloud Key, the Cloud Key, which will allow you to... Uh, Run the controller on a little $99 USB stick-like thing, uh, and then it's a dedicated controller. The other thing that I have played with recently, Ian, that's really helpful is Ubiquiti now supports using your smartphone to program the access point, though I wouldn't necessarily recommend that because it's not a managed system at that point. You're just you're autonomously programming those access points, but it is something that you could do. Uh, As far as how to actually uh, get the best coverage in your house and minimize interference, the way you're going to do that is by properly placing access points, so getting them up high, Uh, don't have it under the couch, don't have it in the basement, get it up in an attic if you can, get it on if you have a three-story house on the second floor mounted to the ceiling, something like that, Um, and you want to space them properly. When I say space them properly, what we're looking for is 20 decibels of signal separation so from one access point to the other you want 20 db of signal separation a lot of people try and cheat and they use um like a a physical measurement they'll say well i space my access points 50 feet apart well in a brick building that does one thing and in a wide open conference hall that does something completely different you don't want to do that you don't want to go specifically you know with just you know like a measuring stick you want to look at the actual signal strength that's how you're going to get the best uh Wi-Fi quality. And then past that, if you've done all of those things, if you've if you've done proper channel analysis and you've tried to, uh, you know, pick the, the least used channel, you're using the five gigahertz, you turn the power way down. Um, One of the things that I see, especially with the UAPs, is they talk out further than they can hear, and people crank those things up to high, and then they wonder why they they turn their house into this mesh of signal, and they don't understand why they can't get good Wi-Fi. Turn those things all the way down to low, separate them out, about 20 dB of signal separation. You can look inside the controller. It will tell you that. Uh, And then, uh, to answer your question, should you use the same SSID? I would, because that way you only have to connect to one network and you'll, and then you know it'll it'll decide which access point is, is the is the best signal strength. Now that's something that we call ESSI, and basically what it looks at is it looks at how much interference and where the best signal is, and then it will automatically hand you off from one access point to the other. Now, in the Unify system, it actually has something called zero handoff, which which means that it will actually take one of those access points, and, and the system will decide for you, I want these four clients over on this access point and this one on that one, and it'll it'll do all that math and figure all that out for you so you don't have to do anything, which is, again, another reason why I really like the Unify. It takes a lot of the problem-solving out of it and just kind of handles a lot of that for you. Does does that answer your question Ian?
2: Yeah, so this controller software is that that's freely available and can it run on something like a Pi or something like that?
1: Yes, sir. I don't know for sure if they have an ARM port, although I think that they do. Um, the uh, the software, there is, a, there is a PPA available. You can install it. Uh, and again, if you don't want to run it on Linux, you can run it on Mac or Windows. But what I would do uh, is I would just spin up a, a virtual machine inside of something like VirtualBox, or you could use uh, uh, Vert Manager or something like that. And that's how, actually how I run mine. I rent a machine on, uh, on one of a VPS provider, um, OVH, and we actually run our controller there. Of course, our controller is handling thousands, since we have 311 hotels. So we're, we're handling thousands and thousands of access points. We're not doing, you know, I'm assuming, you know, you said your house is what, 2,000 square feet, 3,000 square feet?
2: Yeah, 2,500. Yeah. yeah.
1: So two access points, put one on each end. Uh, you should be more than fine. Uh, in fact, you could get away with one. My house is 4,000 square feet and I have two access points. Uh, you could get away well, with... I have, one, I, have,
2: I have one at the moment and it's just, it's not good. Yeah. I'm fighting all the time with the others, you know. Yeah. Qual, qual, I think it's because of the other, the other houses around. Yeah,
1: quality of the quality of the access point is going to be paramount. Uh, configuration is going to be even more important. And if you can get those two things dialed in, you're going to have a really great experience.
2: Okay, sounds good. Well, I'll do I'll, uh, I'll get them purchased and if I have any further questions after I've got it up and running, I'll uh, I'll give you a call. Y-
1: you know where to find me. 6PM Central 855 450 noaa that's 855-450-6624. Harry is calling from Illinois. Hi Harry, welcome to the Ask Noah show.
3: Hi, no. Uh, I really appreciate uh, you starting off on on your new, you know, uh, show here. Uh, it, it really helps out the the novice. I mean, I've you know been involved with a uh, little Linux uh, here and there, but let me. Uh, I know you got a lot of callers, so I'm going to uh, sh- start talking about the problem I'm having. Hmm. Firefox on Ubuntu. 14.4. I'm getting this message when I try to open up uh, certain web pages with invalid RTMP URL. I've never mm. seen that before. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So what an RTMP is is we call it the real time media streaming protocol, and basically what it is is it is a stream of media. In fact, interestingly enough, if you are on if you're watching us on Facebook Live, you are receiving an RTMP stream from a broadcast machine. If you're watching us on JB Live TV, okay. you're receiving an RTMP stream there. Um, and what RT, the, the, RTMP is a is it we have a love hate relationship with it because it is based on Flash, which is a dying, <laughs> if not dead technology that we that we're dragging into 2017, and we're going to dra- Dragged, you know, begrudgingly in 2018. But what can you do? The reality is that there's just nothing yet in HTML5 that can replace this, um, and so w- we're oh, stuck. Geez. Yeah, and so we're we're stuck with RTMP. Now, what you what, what can you do to fix that problem? Well, there's a free software that's available to you called VLC Player. It runs again, Mac, Windows, and Linux, completely cross-platform. What you can do is take that link, the link that starts with RTMP, copy the entire URL, open up Facebook, or, I'm sorry, uh, open up VLC, click on File. Uh, open and then click on Network Stream, and then paste that link okay. in there and click Play. And if you do that, flat or uh, sorry, VLC will be able to decode that RTMP stream. Now the reason you're getting that error, I should point out. The reason you're getting that error is because somebody improperly configured their website, most likely. And so instead of rendering it in the player inside of the website, what it's trying to do is it's, it, it, the, your computer is trying to call for a piece of software that can interpret that that media stream. Uh, and so you, know, you might, if you know the people or if you think they'd be sp- responsive to feedback, you may consider pinging them and just saying, hey, you know, Mike, th- this thing is not working, you know, is, is something you could do about it. Um, I would want to know if somebody was listening to our show and, and couldn't see it. It was it was uh, it was doing an outbound call like that. So, but that that's why is that um, is that there's it, Firefox doesn't have anything to handle that RTMP stream. Uh, there should be an embedded Flash player. If you're looking for one, by the way, if you're one of the people that hosts this stuff, JW Player is a really good one. I think there's a newer one out now. Um, but and, and eventually, Jay. JW, JW player. player. It's not JW player. It's nothing you can do. It's something the person who hosts the oh. website has to do. Um, but a JW player oh. is a player that will play inside of the web browser. But the thing is, I wouldn't, you know, the problem is people are having a hard time putting a lot of energy and effort into solving this problem because. Flash is a dying technology. It's been dying for the last 10 years. And, you know, and about the time that Adobe was ready to kill it, uh, you know, everyone else picked it back up. And, and you know, now again, we're, we're heading into 2018. It's terrible. But that's the answer to your question is you want to open that RTMP stream inside of a uh, inside of an actual player like VLC. A couple other ones that do it really well, too. Um, uh, I think uh, MPV is a really good one that that will play an RTMP stream, too. Uh, uh, architect is calling from Texas. Hey, architect. Welcome to the Ask Noah show.
0: Hey, Noah. Glad to be back on the show. Um, calling because I, for the past few months have uh, been trying to couple together some of my free time to put together a few different projects. And uh, one of them is uh, hosting my own email, which I know everyone has been saying is a complete and total pain to deal with. Yep. But I kind of want to. I kind of want to do it anyway because okay. I like having things that are mine, you know. Uh-huh. Um, but I'm just kind of curious. Uh, I'm I'm looking for an email server that, most importantly, works on uh, on BSD, and uh, secondly, is uh, designed to be secure uh, by default. Mm-hmm. I mean, Sendmail is obviously there in base, but it's kind of ancient and full of holes, mm-hmm. uh, so I'm just not sure which uh, mail server I should be looking into now.
1: Okay, well, I, you know, I, here's the thing: you called, you called, you, you called one eight five five four five zero Noah, so Noah's going to give you his opinion, right? That's what you guys pay me to do: is give me my opinion on the show. So that, that's what you're going to get, for better or for worse. Uh, I, I I would be remiss if I didn't start up by telling you you should not host your own email server. Anyone out there that's listening to this, I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna answer your question. I will, I promise. But I'm just telling you as a disclaimer, don't host your email server. We could make you know how much money I could make if I went to all of the clients that that pay other hosting providers and they trust us. Uh, and I said, uh, Altaspeed is now offering email hostings. I mean, we'd have people coming to us right and left saying, yeah, because we we, Alta, we know Altaspeed trusts. Uh, we trust them for, to keep our privacy. We trust them to keep uh, their security. You know, they know and trust our name, I'd make a lot of money if I went and started hosting email servers, and I don't. And the reason is because it's a terrible idea. The I, I We do consulting for an organization, and they have four full-time email administrators that work for their organization, and they have outages and problems with an email server. So, I, you know, Let it be said, if you want to do it, I'm going to tell you how to do it, but I I absolutely don't recommend hosting your own email server, especially because there are so many uh, really great platforms that care about your privacy and do a really good job hosting your email server. So, for example... um, Uh, uh, Proton Mail is a great alternative. It's a little more expensive, but they take privacy very, very seriously, end-to-end encrypted, one account to the other. Um, Their app has encrypted email. Everything is turned on by default, so you don't have to monkey with it. You don't have to understand the technology. You just know that your email is secure. FastMail is a really great alternative to uh, G Suite, uh, alternative to to Gmail. Uh, FastMail is going to provide you all of the calendaring options and and, and all of the real-time work collaboration that Gmail has, and then, of course, you have... Gmail G Suite, which is a drop-in replacement for Outlook. So if you have people that are using Outlook and Exchange, you can just pick the Exchange server up, turn it off, drop in uh, G Suite, and pay your $5 a month per user, and you're set. If you pay the $10 per user per month, you get unlimited storage. So I have something like 25 terabytes stored on, on Google, uh, and they don't charge me anything for it. So for all of those reasons, I wouldn't do what I'm about to tell you. But, because you asked me, uh, I'll answer your question. The software that you're looking for is a software called iRedMail. That's the letter I, red, on R-E-D, and then M-A-I-L, and we'll have a link for you in the show notes. It does run on OpenBSD, also runs on Linux it's a completely open uh, open source mail server fairly straightforward to set up there's tons of tutorials on youtube on how to get it running here is the here's where you're going to run into some problems is is you're going to run into the first issue is going to be you're going to have to worry about uh, spam and and spam mailing lists and and all of that stuff because you're going to have none of that filtering built in and when that stuff starts to get populated around if you're not controlling those if you're not controlling very tightly that server what's going to end up happening is mail is going to be sent from your server because it's it's essentially going to be taken over as a bot and then people are going to use your server to send out mail which is then going to get your server blacklisted Uh, so you really have to stay on top of that and then when that happens you have to reach out to those other mail provider the other mail providers and stuff and say we had a problem i got it fixed can you take me off the blacklist and i think there's a limit to how many times they'll do that uh so again for all of those reasons i wouldn't do what you're asking but if you want to do it i read mail and we'll have a link in the show notes does that answer your question?
0: Yeah, I uh, should have included in uh, a sub-note that I do and have been using ProtonMail since it was in beta. Oh, good. Uh, I just kind of really enjoy uh, doing things the hard, hardest way I can possibly find to do them. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, one of the projects that this email server is supposed to be for is me uh, porting over a, an operating system to Power9.
1: Yeah, yeah, man. I mean, here's the thing. The, the reality is yeah. I do stuff all the time uh, that has no practical purpose or rhyme or reason. I just like doing it because I'm a geek and I like playing with this stuff. And you learn stuff, right? Like the first time you ever set up a web server, you learn all about IT security because they're, they're very heavily targeted. Um, so there, no, there's, 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 if you want to do it as a hobby or just a fun thing, I mean, by all means, n- knock yourself out. I, I'm just as a production, as a production thing, you, I just don't want to give the message out to anyone out there listening that it's a good idea to host your own server unless you have a lot of time a lot of effort a lot of resources and you've done it for a long time you know i mean at some point i mean there are places that do it but it just it's in in 2017 it's just a it's just a bad idea uh brett is calling from illinois hi brett welcome to the ask noah show hi thanks
3: for taking my call noah yes sir how can we hope Um, Well, I had a question for you. uh, But real quick, I also wanted to thank you before I got to that for uh, mentioning the nearby neighboring access points in the Unify controller software. Mm -hmm. Because my whole office here uh, is on Unify APs. And uh, we've been using the Unify controller really successfully for a while now. And I had no idea that feature was in there until you mentioned it.
1: Sorry, which feature?
3: The um the one where you uh you can look at neighboring access points um, oh, yes, channels sure. they're on
1: yes rogue so I'm access with points. That right yeah.
3: now and I mm-hmm. look forward to that yeah, yeah, yeah great um anyway the the main reason I called was um, I work for in IT for a small to medium sized business here in Chicago and um you know all of our workstations with the exceptions of of a few Macs are on Windows 8.1 right now and you know we got Linux you know, up up to our years in Linux in servers. But mm-hmm. we don't have any Linux workstations. Ah. Um, kind of at a crossroads right now where, you know, thanks to Microsoft, uh, making sure Windows 8.1 and our standard image we've worked very hard on won't work on any brand new hardware that we buy. Yep. We yep. either have to move to Windows 10 and redo all of our work there and then be on what is essentially the rolling release version of Windows where right. they're going to throw features whenever they feel like it at us. Yeah, the last version of Windows. Or yeah, essentially, yeah. Or we migrate to uh, some Linux workstations. Mm-hmm. So I'm comfortable with that. Um, but if I'm going to be honest with myself and honest with what our company does, mm-hmm. I feel like we've. I'm a little pessimistic because I'm worried about application lock-in that's keeping us locked into Windows. Yeah. And if I think of you know the nightmare scenario is is our accounting team who has Quicken uh, or sorry not Quicken QuickBooks for desktop that mm-hmm. ties directly into Excel and only Excel, and they're running Oracle Form 6i, mm-hmm. all of which runs only on Windows. So I'm wondering, you know, you've, I'm sure, have encountered things like that in your day-to-day, and how do you deal with software lock-in problems like that? Is, is this realistic that we could putting in Linux workstations.
1: Yes, sir. Yeah, absolutely. It's realistic. Um, So what I do, how I would tackle that if you had called, if you called Altospeed Technologies and said, here is the situation that we have, and we want to bring you in as an IT consultant. We want to know what you would do to solve this problem. Here's what I would tell you. I would tell you that Microsoft is an unpredictable bag of worms more often than it is not. And that is particularly true when it comes to Windows 10. Now, the reason that I become so concerned about Windows 10 is because Microsoft has a real funding problem right now. Their revenue stream is drying up because we see... People that are still sticking on XP. I just we were working on an ATM I think three weeks ago or four weeks ago, and brand new ATM and swapping the thing out, and it was running XP embedded. Uh, that's how much people are sticking to XP. And whatever the stick was on XP, I promise you it's going to be twice as bad on Windows 7 because there's more peop- more things are computerized at the time that Windows 7 was out than at the time XP was out. And so you're going to have even more people that are sticking on uh, Windows 7. And 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 so, because of all of those reasons, people are very resistant to upgrade to Windows 10. And by the time that they do upgrade to Windows 10, that's going to be the license that that is included with the computer. And Microsoft isn't making a ton of money off of that. The days of people going out buying a computer and then spending two or three hundred dollars on uh, on a copy of Windows, and then when the next version of Windows comes out, upgrading to Windows 98, and then uh, Windows 98 Second Edition, and then the plus add-ons, and those days are long gone. Um, and and we see that similarly with Microsoft Office. I don't I can't count the number of businesses that we do consulting for that just say, you know what screw this office thing where it updates every you know randomly and we got five different versions of office floating around and these documents don't format properly here and those don't form. I'm just going to go to to, to Google Docs, and I'll do it in Google Docs. And you see that in the school system as well. The school system, uh, you know, is very heavy on a a lot of school systems. Anyway, I shouldn't say, you know, any specific one, but a lot of them are doing G Suite. And you have a lot of people that are up and coming in the world, understanding and and, and knowing how to work inside of G Suite. And, you know, it really sets them up. Google and the and the young adult very, very well in a lot of ways because they're learning these skills that they can use for free if they just create a Gmail account or the business can buy G Suite, which is what I was just talking to the previous caller about, and all of a sudden, all of those skills will translate because Google Docs is the same everywhere. Uh, so I think the future... Of of Microsoft and and how they're going to make their money, uh, you know, is is a little bit in jeopardy. So getting back a little bit to, to specifics on how we'd solve those problems. So because of some of those reasons, I would be very hesitant to upgrade your entire infrastructure from Windows 8 over to Windows 10. Now, what I might do is virtualize the infrastructure entirely, and so you could use something like uh, you could use uh, VIRT Manager and uh, libvirt D, which is an open source uh, virtualizer and you can install it, it has a lot of the same uh, tools as VMware. Now, if you want a little bit more advanced, you could go with something like Overt. Now, Overt is a direct competitor to VMware. And I'll tell you, I have had conversations with the folks uh, that are in the know at VMware, and they are shrinking their development team down to a skeleton maintenance team. Uh, they're not putting a lot of money into in, into a lot of the the, the VMware stuff. And, and part of that is because they're getting so much competition from Overt uh, and companies like Overt. Red Hat that are competing with Overt, um, and here so here's how, how do you present that to you know a high level uh, you know uh, CEO or president or whatever what, what you would what you would present is if we virtualize our infrastructure we buy software licenses uh, one time and we put them on this virtual infrastructure and now we can take advantage of things like snapshotting we can take advantage of you know. Uh, Production scale production ready file systems like ZFS, uh, and we can u- we can utilize those technologies to keep to to better our uptime and save money. So for example, I'll give you an example, a real life example. We have a client that we're working with, and they have some very very expensive imaging software, like twenty thirty thousand dollars per copy of this imaging software and uh, they need to be able to access it from all 300 some workstations or 200 some workstations, but there's only maybe 75 or 80 some people at any one given time that need to access this software. So rather than buy 300 licenses of this imaging software and put it everywhere, they buy, you know, 60 or 70 licenses and have it on these virtual workstations and the person that needs to use that imaging station logs in, it spins up and grabs you the, the first uh, uh, infrastructure that's available and and then they can use that piece of software. And there's nothing saying that you couldn't assign every want a virtual workstation uh, and then give them a physical workstation to log into that virtual workstation they work from. Um, there are companies that specialize in this entire infrastructure there's a company called n computing and they make the the what they call the n the l300 thin client and what the l300 thin client is it's a box you can buy them on eBay for like 30 40 bucks I think new, they're like 99 uh, but they tie directly into this virtual infrastructure and you can get a virtual desktop as presented as if it was physical hardware but here's where here's where the but the, the rubber meets the road so to speak is when you go to upgrade those machines you're going to spend a lot of money obviously to buy a server that's capable of virtualizing however many workstations right but when you go to upgrade that workstation that server everyone gets an upgrade so you yes you're gonna buy You know the the first time that the cost is a little higher, but then every time after that, most companies that we work with they're on a two or five year cycle. So they 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 swap out the machines every two or five years. Well, after that initial investment, every two or five years you're only spending a couple thousand dollars instead of spending. I'd say the average workstation is between eight and twelve hundred dollars plus software licenses on top of that. So maybe maybe fifteen to eighteen hundred dollars total, depending on what you're doing. Uh, you're going to take, and that's per workstation. You're going to take that down to a hundred dollars per workstation, and maybe you'll spend seven or ten thousand dollars every time you do the, every time you cycle the server. So that's going to somewhat depend on how big your organization is, right? If that's cost effective or not. Does that make sense? Well, I think that- we have a
3: lot of the infrastructure. Yeah, I, I think we have a lot of the infrastructure in place for that already. We already have an existing VMware ESXi cluster. Oh, there you go. Um, so we can use a lot of that, um, and it sounds like you're essentially suggesting kind of a, a thin client model. So yes. instead of upgrading to Windows 10 because Microsoft made me do that to buy new hardware, right. um, I'm running my old Windows 8.1 in a VM until it's, I guess, end of life.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's what I would do. And there's there is a tool. I can't think of the the, the name of it off the top of my head. Um, I'll see if I can. F- I'll have it for sure in the in the uh, in the show notes for you. But there is a tool put out by Microsoft themselves. And what this tool does, it's really fascinating. I'm gonna see if I can find the name of it. What this tool does is yeah, it's disk. The number two, VHD.exe. I'll have a link for you uh, to, that, uh, to that tool in the show notes. But what Disk2VHD does is it takes a physical workstation and turns it into a virtual hard disk. And so we have gone into offices and we've run this tool, which is put up by Microsoft. Uh, you, you take this tool, you run it on a physical workstation, and then you, it spits out a VHD hard drive image. Uh, and I convert those to QCow2 because the performance is a little better. We take that, that converted QCow2 file, put it on a, uh, a, a libvert D hypervisor, and then we have those people RDP back into their original workstation. And the advantage to doing that is you can take an entire office and virtualize it in a matter of hours, uh, and then and then you spend a little bit of money on a really beefy server, and all of a sudden everyone's like, man, my computer just got a lot faster, uh, and I have more memory available. Oh, and by the way, upgrading, is you know, snapshotting is a thing now. So if the computer becomes infected with a virus or cryptocurrency, which we're going to talk about here in a couple minutes, when that kind of stuff comes up, you're not going to have to worry about it because you just you click into the, uh, you click into the, uh, the, the uh, virtual manager and you click on a snapshot and roll back. And we had a client. It was actually, it was fascinating. They had this uh, PDF software called... Um, it uh, Nuance, Nuance PDF re- uh, editor, and it was it was a it was interesting. We installed the latest version and there was something that conflicted with a service pack on Windows 7 and the entire computer blue screened and uh, they couldn't see it because it was it's it's a virtual infrastructure. So I log. they all they said was eh, it doesn't it kicks me out every I, I it kicks me out. So I'm watching the actual console. Uh, control of this machine and I'm watching a blue screen and just because I've been doing this for so long I couldn't help it like my heart sinks into my stomach and I'm like oh man their, their machine is blue screen like this is bad and then I start thinking about it because the client is nine hours away oh wait it doesn't matter because it's virtual in fact if I went there all I would do is plug in my laptop to their network and I'd be doing it on the same software that I'm doing from my office it doesn't matter that it's it doesn't matter that it's blue screen it doesn't matter that this is a physical problem now if that had been a physical workstation It'd been game over. They'd either have to ship us the machine, we'd have to subcontract out to a local IT contractor, and I'd, I'd 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 have to go out there. Those are the three options because you can't can't remotely fix this this blue screening problem. It's just it was in a boot cycle. But I was able to fix it. Now worst case scenario, I could have just reinstalled the OS uh, and and I would have been fine. But we take snapshots. Uh, I think it does snapshots every day and every week. Um, so I just rolled back to before we I looked to see where the last snapshot was and roll back until the machine booted up and said, oh, what was the last thing we did? Oh, yeah, it installed that uh, latest version of Nuance. Dug into the problem a little bit, found out there was a conflict, fixed the conflict, and they never really knew, they were never the wiser. And I did that in like 15 minutes. Those are the kind of things that you can't do if you're not dealing with, uh, if you're dealing with the physical infrastructure instead of a virtual infrastructure. And you can always tell Where the future of technology is, by where the where the the people that have a lot of money, where budget isn't necessarily so much of a constraint, what are they doing? So I always look to what is Google doing, what is Amazon doing, what is eBay doing, because those are the players that they're every time they have an employee that can't work, uh, especially in the case of Google. I mean, some of those guys are making 150, 200 k a year. If he's just sitting at a computer because his computer's dead, what's he doing? And um, you know that's what they do. They have a they have a main machine. And they they SSH in. They have all the, the Google's really fascinating because they have all these plugins and stuff that enable you to do it from Chromebooks and MacBooks and Windows computers and everything. Um, but that's that's the direction that they're going. Uh, again, guys, eight five five four five zero Noah. That's eight five five four five zero six six two four. You can send an email live at asknoahshow.com. Again, we're streaming live on Facebook, Facebook Live this evening uh, because it's fun. Now, two weeks ago, we talked a little bit about this idea of intrinsic value for currency. We talked about the fact that the United States dollar only has a value because we say that it has a value. And so if you accept dollars for your paycheck, it's because that you trust that somebody else is going to take those dollars as payment for groceries. And you can pay your light bills. Um, If tomorrow we all decided that instead we are going to trade shoelaces, that's what we decided. were We're going to trade shoelaces for payment. And that was going to be our intrinsic value. We we're going to all trust the shoelace. Then tomorrow, uh, shoelaces will be sold out in Walmart. Or if we did, we could do the same thing with uh, 64 megabyte sticks of RAM, right? We're all geeks. We probably have some of those laying around. They're they're somewhat rare at the, the, this point, I would think. Uh, we could just decide we're going to trade in 64 megabyte RAM sticks, and so. Those and so we start to look at what things keep us from trusting a given currency. Well, currency stability is one, and most of us n- believe and understand that it tomorrow we wake up, the United States dollar is still going to have this roughly the same value as it has today. Um, and that's where this uh, that's where this idea of cryptocurrency comes in, and that's why it is so fascinating lately. Um, as of right now, I need this device here. As of right now, uh, Bitcoin is at uh, $7,061.30. Uh, so dramatic, dramatic climbing in just the last couple of months. Um, and, and why that's interesting is, and I'll give you an example. So if I work for one week and I earn $10,000, I can go buy a pretty used, decent car. Uh, Or I could put a down payment on a house, very small house, or I could buy 10,000 little snicker bars, which is probably what I'd actually do at the dollar store. But the day after that, the government says, you know what? The federal debt is so high. We owe so much money to China. Let's go ahead and fire up the printing presses, boys, and we're going to pay back China. Now, if we did that shortly thereafter, the U.S. would print like, you know, whatever, $10 trillion in currency. And then we would have what we call inflation because there's now $10 trillion floating around that we didn't have before. And so I still have ten thousand dollars. All ten thousand of them are still there, but they have less purchasing power. I can buy less that day than I could the day before. That is, the store would now only sell me maybe you know five thousand Snicker bars for because they're two dollars a piece or whatever you know. Um, And so, what can we do about that? Well, we could limit the number of dollars that we print, but that solution—it's an artificial solution. It only is going to last as long as we continue decide to decide to put off. Uh, printing any more money. Bitcoin is unique in that, like gold, there are only 21 million coins. There will never be any more Bitcoins uh, minted. There are only so many available. And so, for example, when, you, when we lost a bunch of Bitcoins in the Mountain Gox crash, everyone's Bitcoins went up just a little bit. And the reason for that is because of the law of supply and demand. We decrease the total available bitcoins that are are available to be mined because those bitcoins were mined and the private keys were lost, and so those coins no longer exist in the ecosystem anymore. They are lost. So therefore, every other bitcoin has become that much more rare, and so they rose in value. And um, so, how do bitcoins come into existence? Well, we it, it basically it's it's a very simple process. A math problem is proposed. And computers work on solving that math problem and we call that mining and if they solve the math problem correctly they are awarded a coin now in 2017 the math problems are so complex and it takes so long that you literally have hundreds of thousands of machines to solve these problems and so when you combine a lot of machines together to mine a Bitcoin we call that a mining pool and when the problem is solved then every person that participated in the pool gets to take home a small fraction of the Bitcoin. Now, if you have a small fortune to get into Bitcoin mining and you can afford to buy these bitcoins that Bitcoin miners that cost thousands and thousands of dollars uh, but mine bitcoins very very quickly, you can actually make some money doing. It. and there are people that do that. But the reality is that y- you, most of us can't afford the hardware that would be necessary to actually mine Valuable cryptocurrency. You can do some of the cheap knockoff ones, but the 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 actual expensive things like Bitcoin and Litecoin and stuff like that, you you really need uh, you really need a, a large miner to 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 take that on. Um, and again. So unless you have a small fortune, that, I wouldn't recommend trying to get into this for to make any money. You're, you're going to lose money, undoubtedly. But I see it as a hobby. That's what this is. Cryptocurrency is a hobby, and I don't expect to make any money when I go water skiing. I don't expect to make any money when I go out to the range and shoot guns. I don't expect any money when I sit down to play guitar. Uh, those are hobbies, and we spend a reasonable portion of our budget for an entertainment purpose. Now there is a nationally syndicated uh, radio host, Dave Ramsey, who has spoken a few different times on cryptocurrency, Bitcoin in specific, and he has told people repeatedly, "Don't invest in Bitcoins." There's always some smart aleck that will go to his page and say something along the lines of, "Well, I made some money, so Bitcoin has gone up. It's at seven thousand dollars today. I guess, I, I guess, uh, I, guess uh, I guess you're the idiot." And um, You know, his stance has always been, and he's 100% right about this, that just because you can make some money one or two times does not necessarily mean that's a a, a good idea. It doesn't mean that it's a good investment. And I'll go one step further as to say that if I were to have Mr. Ramsey on the show and I were to ask him, do you support me spending a small, reasonable portion of my earned income to fund a small hobby of mine? He'd say, as long as I'm not borrowing money to do it and it's a reasonable expansion of my budget, go ahead, as long as it makes you happy. So you shouldn't expect to make any money. Uh, investing in Bitcoin. You shouldn't expect to make any money mining Bitcoin. If you look at the power consumption it takes to actually mine a cryptocurrency, you're often going to spend more money, you're going to spend more money to actually purchase the mining equipment and the electricity alone than you'll ever make off the actual currency. Uh, And so that's never a good way to get get into the cryptocurrency, unless, again, you're doing it as a hobby. Now, there are some cheap ways to, not cheap, but market value ways to get into Bitcoin. And the way to do that would be something like Coinbase. Coinbase Coinbase.com is an online cryptocurrency wallet. And basically, they simplify the process down to what amounts to an online bank account style thing. Essentially, what you do is you sign up for an account add your banking details, and transfer $10, $15, $25, $100, whatever, into your Coinbase account, and then you can convert that into Bitcoin. And then you can hold on to that Bitcoin, and then you can sell it. Now, I think I've made it pretty clear. I spent the last 10 minutes talking about how you're never going to make any money in Bitcoin. <clears throat> Again, $7,000 today? $7,061 today. I want to tell you that I, I furnished my entire living room uh, with fairly expensive furniture, Entirely on Bitcoin and I didn't pay anything for that Bitcoin. I just I mine the Bitcoin and knowing full well that I was never going to make any money because it's more expensive. All those things I just said they're all true. But when Bitcoin literally goes up five times in value in in a matter of two years, it turns out you can make a lot of money. Uh, and so you there, there's a chance that you just get lucky and, and then it's fun. And then the hobby becomes kind of fun because I managed to fund a couple trips and my whole living room and it's just it's just a fun thing to do. And I really support people getting involved in Bitcoin from the purpose of it being a hobby, from the purpose of it being something fun, because I'll tell you what, the future, I don't know if it'll be Bitcoin. I don't know if it'll be Litecoin. I don't, it, it's entirely possible that we will come up with something called the digital dollar, and that will just be the, the, the future. But cryptocurrency in general, the concept of a public ledger, which I'll get to, your, to here in a moment, that concept has succeeded even if any of these individual cryptocurrencies fail. And it's fun to participate in what the future of online, at least, currency is going to be. So let's talk about the, the blockchain. Let's talk about the, the the public ledger. Basically, what happens when you're awarded a Bitcoin? When you solve the math problem, how, what happens? Well, the transaction of the coin being awarded to you is recorded in what we call the public ledger. And that ledger is basically a large Excel spreadsheet, uh, for lack of a, a better explanation term. And everyone who wants a copy can download it. And Every single tra- transaction that is ever conducted in Bitcoin... Uh, in other words coins that are being transferred from one account to another account is 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 called a transaction and is recorded in that public ledger now this is great from a fraud standpoint because there are 10,000 100,000 100 billion people that all have this ledger copied it's pretty it's almost impossible. We'll say it's impossible, practically speaking, to ever circumvent the security of the public ledger. I can alter my public ledger. I might even be able to convince a couple hundred thousand people to alter their public ledger, but it will be dwarfed by the hundreds of other million people that say, "Nah, those people are wrong. That doesn't match what we all have. Um, and But at the same time, we can propagate changes to the ledger, to everyone's ledger, as long as they're authentic transactions, we can propagate those changes within a matter of seconds. Uh, which makes sending money across uh, international lines super quick and efficient. It means carrying money uh, across international lines is super quick and efficient. Um, so if you... So uh, let's see here. So the, the benefit... It's a double-sided sort because... At the same time, this public ledger means that there is no personally identifiable information to any one transaction ever. All it is is numbers. We simply say this coin identified by this cryptographical key has moved from this account over here to this account over here. And none of those have names attached to them. However, because the entire public ledger is in fact public and everyone can have a copy of it, if at any point in time I can tie a Bitcoin address to a given human being, I can forever follow that money. So let's let, let's walk through an example. If you were to buy a Bitcoin from Coinbase, which has your banking information, so they can they can get a subpoena and get get your personally identifiable information, your name, your social security number, your dog's pet, and all that stuff. Uh, you, and you you buy that from from Coinbase. If if you or if let's say you mine from Slush Pool, which is a common uh, pool for mining Bitcoin, uh, and you have an account that's tied maybe to your email address, again something that's personally identifiable. If you have either of those two things, at some point you can go back and and they can say, okay, that person mined this particular coin and then he sent that coin to this address and then that coin went to that address and then that coin went to that address and that coin. And you can you can follow that money around. And we saw that happen in the Ross Albrecht case. If you don't know who Ross Albrecht was, he's a guy who took the advent of Bitcoin and said, I could pair that with an illegal marketplace and we could sell tons and tons of illegal things Um illegally, uh, and and we could use Bitcoin to facilitate that transaction. And he he mistakenly thought that because it's there are these it's just cryptographical signatures there's no actual names tied to the stuff that the money could never be traced could never be found and that was somewhat true but it turns out when you get the power the resources and the power of the US government behind and they start digging through some of this paper trail stuff you can in fact trace some of this money through and if, I, I know that there's going to be somebody out there that's gonna write on the, on you know the YouTube thing or whatever and say well no don't you know about money laundering and they, they have these uh, washing services that wash your big, I get it. I, I know that there are there are there are ways that you can make it substantially more difficult to trace. But the, the, the fact remains that once I can tie a given address to a given person, I can follow that money around, even if that money gets mushed up with other people's money and it becomes a little bit more hard to to find out where that money comes out. Uh, you know, so so it, it's a double edged sword. It's both. It's simultaneously the most public and transparent kind of currency that we can have. And at the same time, it's the most anonymous. And that's an interesting paradox. And uh, so there's going to be somebody out there, no, why do you think that Bitcoin is the future of online currency? And if you think about this, we rarely take our money out of the bank here in the United States. And I, I know in Japan and, and parts of the other world, uh, I, I, the last time I said this, I got people from Europe all over the place. They're like, we, we have plenty of cash. I don't know what you're talking about. But here in the US, we leave a lot of our money into the bank. And we, we it goes into the bank electronically and we spend it electronically in, in the form of our debit cards. Uh, and... Now I went to McDonald's and um, my son ordered on this big touchscreen thing that they have there, and uh, I just use Android Pay, and I just I touch my phone and the money sucks out of my bank account, and I, I've never even seen that money. It's become even one step less removed. Now I'm not even talking to the bank per se. I enter the bank information, the debit card information into Android Pay, and Android Pay is doing the interface. So we're even one, we're even more removed. And there are we, the, the standards for moving money are very archaic. Uh, at least they are here in the U.S. I can move money from one bank account to the other, but I would have to do it with something like a bank wire, which costs 20 or $30. Now, there are some newer services like uh, Cash, uh, cash.me put out by um, Square, and PayPal now has instant transfers and stuff like that. Um, but they also have fees associated with them. And uh, sometimes they're instant, sometimes they're not. It's kind of hit or miss. But all of these apps, all of these things are band-aids to problems in 2017 that are rooted in the 1800s and 1900s. Like, it's just not how we spend currency anymore. Uh, And if I want, and it gets even more, this becomes super evident. This is why I said online currency, because I think before, long before it takes off in day-to-day transactions, I think it's going to take off in the, it already is taking off in the online currency, uh, online transaction world. If I want to buy a product in Japan and I buy it from, on eBay, right now that process is I log into PayPal, I add my payment details, I buy the item on eBay, eBay sends me, the seller sends me an invoice, I pay it with PayPal, and then there's this ridiculously complicated thing that happens. First, I have to give my money to PayPal. Then PayPal converts U.S. dollars into yen. And then they take the yen and they transfer it into the other person's account. But... Because of fraud and depending on if the seller is new or not new or how long they've had, the, you know, and how tall they are and what color shirt they're wearing and a bunch of other weird things that PayPal comes up with, they'll just indefinitely hold the money. We covered a story very, very early on in the show, I think episode four or five, that talked about a story where a gentleman running his entire business on PayPal and PayPal just one day decided, just decided, hey, uh, I know you've been doing business with us for 10 years and we don't really, we've never had a fraud complaint against you, but we just decided today we're going to hold your money for the next eight months and it was you know it was an exceptionally high amount of money i think it was like twenty thousand dollars twenty five thousand dollars something like that that he had done some uh, sold a car i can't remember but um but they can just do that and 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 part of that is because we get all these regulations involved and all of these control mechanisms to try to prevent fraud and stuff and part of that is people just don't think right i will be very honest with you bitcoin is a very good way to get scammed Uh, A lot of people don't understand the technology. A lot of people don't understand how to secure the technology. And if you're one of those people and you want to get involved with Bitcoin, I would suggest getting involved with something like Coinbase. Uh, Blockchain.io is another really great one. Um, The thing I like about blockchain over Coinbase is blockchain will allow you to take a, you can generate a key pair. For Bitcoin that's how that's how bitcoins are stored. They're stored. You have a public address and a private address It's the same as every encryption uh, Protocol out there is we have a public address and a private address And so we transfer our bitcoins to the public address and we need to sign the transaction with the private key in order for those bitcoins to leave again so TLDR if I keep the private key private then nobody can ever take my bitcoins so the way I store a large portion of my bitcoins are I generate these key pairs public and private key pairs And I print them off and put them in a physical safe. And that way, it really can't be hacked, so to speak. Now, the downside to doing that is I have no way of watching those accounts and making sure that A, the money is still in there, but B, how much money is in there, how much money is in each account, all that kind of stuff. That's where blockchain.io is really nice because it'll allow you to enter just the public keys as addresses and you can watch those accounts without ever having to actually submit the private key and the private key being compromised that's how your bitcoins end up getting stolen that's how that's how people stole bitcoins out of mount gox that's how that's and that's why a large portion of the cryptocurrency community will tell you don't put your cryptocurrency on these online bank account type things like coinbase or blockchain because you're relying on their security and uh, a lot of times the people that are stealing this stuff are smarter than the people that are running these companies a lot of these companies are started by venture capitalists who don't really understand the technology. They just want to make a bunch of money. And so they do technically stupid things. Uh, and, and so blockchain.io is interesting because you can, kind of, you can kind of thread that line. You can have the convenience of having just an app that I can pull up and see how much money I have in my Bitcoin wallet without ever having to actually give up any of my security. Um, so, but so yeah, I, I I really I'm really interested in cryptocurrency, and and again, watching as cryptocurrency, especially Bitcoin in specific, as it climbs uh, and as it kind of does this roller coaster thing, but in general, is on its way up. I think it's something that the show has to keep an eye on for. And there's there's all these memes that are going around because those of us that have been that are true geeks that are true nerds, we've been following cryptocurrency since 2012, 2013, um, and uh, you know, bring back Plan B hashtag. But but you, we, we have liked and, and seen these things and nobody cared back then because it was like, oh, the stupid uh, the stupid pretend money thing is, you know, it's worth a couple bucks. Nobody cares. And, um, you know, think what you want about things like the Silk Road. It brought a lot of legitimacy to Bitcoin. It showed how. Even if even in an unregulated Bitcoin, the U.S. government has come out and said Bitcoin is not currency. And even with that stamp of it's not real currency, it's not real money. You guys are just playing online. Turns out a lot of people bought a lot of stuff from uh, from this marketplace using this illegitimate. And I'm using my quote fingers, illegitimate currency. And um, and after that, you've seen a bunch of other marketplaces pop up. And they take Bitcoin. Now, Altuspeed Technologies, we take Bitcoin. If you want to pay us in Bitcoin for a service, in fact, we have a flat rate. Um, One of the things I did early on was I said that if people want Bitcoin to be accepted, then we need to stabilize the market. And the way to do that is to stop tying it to fiat currencies. So just say I will accept X amount of a payment in Bitcoin to do a given service. And so I stuck my foot in the mud and I said, I don't care if Bitcoin is worth a million dollars or one cent, I will work for, I will do one hour of service for this amount. And I don't remember what it is, but it, I mean, I'm sure it's thousands of dollars at this point. Um, but I just, I stuck my, my foot in the sand and I said, I'm sticking with it. And, uh, you know, at some point, maybe we'll reevaluate that. But I, I, we don't do what a lot of these other businesses do, which they use a service like BitPay and they t- they'll, they'll accept Bitcoin technically, but it immediately gets converted back into U.S. dollars. And that's an OK thing. If you are if you own a technology company or you run a uh, if you run an IT service company or something like that and you want to support the cryptocurrency community or you want to let your customers pay, that BitPay is a great way to do that because it, it takes all the risk out of Bitcoin. It doesn't matter how much the market fluctuates at the time that you got your payment. Uh, it will it will get deposited in U.S. dollars in your account. So it's kind of a cool way to play. Uh, I getting quite, uh, a couple of questions coming in. Uh, what do I recommend for miners? Ant, Ant Miner S3 is a great miner. Um, it sells for between 150 and 200 bucks on eBay. But you want to do the math. Uh, it, that will net you. It, it's it's uh, that will net you. Let's see here. Let's do the math. That will net you about 11 dollars a month. In Bitcoin, so do you see why I'm saying this is not this is not a way to make money? It's just a, it's just a hobby. It's just something to play with. Uh, you'll make eleven dollars a month, and that's before you've taken into account the tremendous amount of electricity. My, I think my my S3 ant miners. I think they are on six hundred watt power supplies, and I've got four of them. So I'm making forty bucks a month. But when you consider how much power I've spent plus the miners at the time that I bought them, they were like three or four hundred dollars. Uh, you know, it's it's like a ten year ten year break even point. Um, but, you know, the, the thing that has turned around, and it happened once before, so, you know, it could happen again, but it would just be a function of luck, is the, the, uh, the inflation of Bitcoin itself, the, the, the growing uh, value of Bitcoin, which seems to, it definitely seems to be on its way up. But uh, nobody cared about Bitcoin back in 2014, 15, and even 16 to, to a lesser extent, and now all of a sudden it seems like every time I turn around somebody wants to know uh, what Bitcoin is, how do they get involved, is it safe to get involved, that's that's what you do. You go to coinbase.com, you sign up for an account, and they will take care. I'm not it's not a guarantee. I've been, no one's not going on the red book and saying that's you're going to keep all your money safe, but I'll give you a much higher likelihood that you won't have any problems doing it through a reputable site like Coinbase um, that takes all of the mystery and all the technical things out of it and you just I have this many bitcoins, now they're worth this much, now I want to spend them. Here's the address how I spend them. Here's how I take them in. It's very straightforward and simple. Hey guys, we had a suggestion in the Asnoa Telegram group. If you're not familiar with Telegram, it's a instant messenger platform that is fantastic for group collaboration. You can join Asnoa Show or I'm sorry, telegram.asnoashow.com. Also, while you're at the Asnoashow.com, make sure to check out our past episodes and uh, you can contact the show that way. We had a discussion about a war stories episode. Most of you that listen to the show work in the IT field in some way, uh, some way or a form of another, and uh, we're gonna do a war stories episode. We're gonna do that. Some of you guys can't join us live, so we had the, you know, we took calls the first half of the hour, second half of the hour. I wanted to talk about cryptocurrency, but. Uh, there's some of you that have said, you know, I just I can't be there at six o'clock on a Monday night. And we do this show every uh, every Monday at 6 p.m. Central. So n- n- uh, not next week, the week after Saturday, the 18th of November at 6 p.m., we're going to do a war stories episode. And we got a couple of people lined up. They have some really fantastic stories about working in the IT fields. Crazy, crazy, crazy stuff uh, that, you know, that all of us have seen. And if you've worked in IT for any more than, you know, a couple of a uh, couple of months even you have you have seen how you know the kind of crazy things that you get asked to do and and the crazy assumptions that users make and stuff and it, it's just going to be a lot of fun so the war stories episode will be a special edition of the ask noah show won't be replacing our, our normal show time that'll still be monday at 6 p.m central but saturday the 18th 6 p.m. Central, AskNoahShow.com. You can watch the video version, JB Live Maybe we'll stream that one to Facebook uh, Live too. Hello, everyone from Facebook Live. Thank you so much. This is, we don't usually do this. Usually, we're we're live on the radio, 88.3, and uh, and But uh, today we are testing our brand new broadcast machine, and so I needed a place to send that second stream that wouldn't take a lot of the viewers out of the uh, out of our traditional uh, uh, stream sources. And so uh, so that's what we did. We took you to. Uh, Facebook Live. So thanks for hanging out with us. I'm uh, sorry that I don't have more of. I'm broadcasting from my studio, so I'm sorry I don't have more like technical stuff. It's all just uh, you know music stuff, and, and it's kind of my kind of my my man cave, my my music slash uh, geek man cave. Um, but uh, thanks for hanging out with us. We really appreciate it. You guys should follow us on Twitter at Ask Noah Show. We, uh, we tweet out from time to time. Uh, you'll get updates about the show, things that are happening, our live locations. Two weeks ago, we did a live event uh, from Fargo at Vox Telus. Huge thank you to them for donating our, our uh, broadcast call-in system. Uh, conference time is coming up next, uh, the next couple months, January, February, March, April. Those are going to be conferences. We'll be live at all the major Linux events. Uh, we'll be live from NEB in Las Vegas. Going to be a great time. So, if you want coverage of any of that stuff, you want to hear, make sure to follow us on Twitter. The Ask Noah Show talked about that a little bit before. show.com That is the Ask Noah dashboard. It's where you can find links to show notes, uh, contact for the show. Uh, again, changes that are coming up for the show. We also release small little. Uh, bite sized YouTube videos, reviews of hardware, reviews of software. When 1710 came out, obviously there's going to be a big review of 1804 when it breaks in April. So it's a fantastic place to stay involved. You can follow me personally at Kernel Linux on Twitter or on Facebook, Facebook.com/slash Kernel Linux, which is where this here live stream. Is, uh, is coming from this hour. want to th- give a huge thanks to Ben, our producer, Sarah, our call screener, and Rekai, our video editor, of course, the entire team at jupiterbroadcasting.com for making this show possible. Make sure to check them out, jupiterbroadcasting.com or jblive.tv. Tons of great tech podcasts. We'll see you back next week at uh, Asnoshow.com Thanks a lot, and have a great night.